Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Well, today, thank you for joining us online. And uh, those of you here in person, you look even more chipper than normal. That extra hour of sleep, uh, we're glad you're here. Ephesians 5 is where we're going to be today. So why don't you grab your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to pray for us, and uh, then we'll jump into today's message. Father, uh, we come before you. Thank you that we can call you our Father. Um, so many people view uh, you, God, as someone who's far off and not caring. And so many people, even when they hear, hear the term Father, because of a bad relationship with their dad, they got uh, bad feelings from that. But Father, you're a perfect Father. You give good gifts. You've given us the gift of your Son, Jesus, we've sung about this morning. You give us your promises. You give us your word. You give us other people. I pray, God, that every, every heart that is going to hear these words this morning, whether this is a good message or a bad message as far as performance is concerned, they would hear your message. That just from even reading your word, that you would change a life today. God, will you save someone who's either watching or listening? Uh, will you please transform marriages and transform families and make better moms and dads and make people that are more like your son Jesus live intentionally on mission for you as a result of our time in these next few moments. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I've titled today's sermon, Waking Up to Wisdom. And so I want to ask you this question as we get started. What's the dumbest thing you've ever done? <laughs> You're laughing at, hopefully at yourself uh, right now, not the person next to you as I ask that question. But you think about it, it's like, we've all done foolish things. Is there anybody here who's never done anything foolish? Anybody raise your hand? I'll say there's people moving, guy, somebody in the back pointed to someone else when I pointed at them. All right. So nobody here. We've all done dumb things before. I was reading uh, this week some different facts of things that have happened historically, and I was reading some stuff about the Titanic, and after the first service, I had a guy come up to me after the service and say, I'm in a musical this, this coming whatever month it was, and he says, and it's for the Titanic, and what you said is right, and here's some more information. But I read a story this week about the Titanic, that there was a guy whose job it was to spot icebergs. <laughs> he blew it, if you don't know the Titanic story. Uh, but what happened to him was he didn't have a key to the locker that had the binoculars, who messed that up, is what I'm wondering. And who said, oh, don't worry, it's no big deal. Let's go anyways. That was foolish. I read a story about a Bible that was printed, and uh, there was a misprint in the Bible, in the top ten part of the Bible, the Ten Commandments. They deleted one word. One word can change everything. The word was not. Instead of saying, thou shalt not commit adultery, it said, thou shall commit adultery. Deleting that one word changed a whole lot. They nicknamed that the Wicked Bible. If you want to Google that, that's not a Satanic Bible. It's a misprinted Bible that sends you on a totally different path, a path of foolishness. As I thought about my own life and I was thinking, you know, just what are some of the dumb things I've done? It didn't take me long to figure out several things. I've shared some stories with you throughout the year. Some of you may think he should tell the story about this. <laughs> he should tell that I caught my lawnmower on fire one time. I was kicked out of jail. Yeah, that's right. I didn't escape. They kicked me out. You're so bad. Get out of here. There was a, a time I got chased one time, a high-speed chase. It was my fault. I didn't have a driver's license. I was getting chased. Like dumb stuff that I've done. But I thought of a story that I don't think I've shared with you. Maybe a couple of you know. Um, but it was when I was in college. How many stories of foolishness start that way? When I was in college, oh boy, this is going to be bad. Like, I was having dinner with a whole bunch of other Christian guys. I had come to Christ, and we came out of this restaurant together. I'd eaten dinner together. We're doing ministry. We're talking about the ministry we're doing. And it was in Ohio. I was dogging out Ohio on the first service, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, our football team plays the football team you like in a couple weeks. You're going to pay for that. <laughs> so here's what you need to know about Ohio. It's cold. It's gray. It was the middle of November. 
See, some people, when they do bad stuff, they go to jail. Other people, God has them live in Ohio. And so I was living in Ohio for a little while, and in, in college, we come out middle of November, and I walk up to, I'm about to get in the car that we drove there in, and my buddy looks at me and says, you won't swim across that lake. <laughs> to which I said, you're right. Like, I'm swimming across that lake. You're crazy. It's cold outside. And uh, then he said, and he looked at, we had seven or eight other guys with us, and he said, everybody here will give you five bucks each if you'll swim across that lake. A couple minutes later, I was in my boxer shorts, standing next to the lake, jumping in. I swam about 25% across the lake and then realized, one, this lake's a lot further than it looked from perspective standing up on top of that hill. Two, it is cold. And so I was like getting numb, getting stiff. I thought, but I just got to keep going. I'm not going to turn around now. Halfway through the lake, I'm swimming next to a light. Not a light like, whoo, but like there's a light that was in the, it was in the lake and a fountain. And I thought, what was I thinking? I could die. Can I get electrocuted here? And so I just keep going. Like, what are you going to do at that point? I just keep swimming. I get to the other side of the lake. I've almost got hypothermia. Like, my body's changing colors. I'm shaking like this. My buddies are putting blankets on me. They're feeling guilty now. They get me up to the parking lot because they're going to put me in the car, take me to get a warm shower. And I start throwing up everywhere in the parking lot. Somebody walks by and says, did you guys eat here? And somebody said, yeah. He goes, what did he have? Not the most compassionate person in that moment. But then listen to how dumb I was. We went back to my apartment. I took a shower. I felt pretty good after the shower. And now I got money in my pocket and I haven't eaten. So let's go to dinner. It's on me. What a fool. (laughs) How about you? You done some dumb things before? You been foolish in some of your decision making? Today we're talking about waking up to wisdom. Here's what wisdom is, just so you know. Wisdom's not just knowing right information. Wisdom's not just knowledge. Wisdom is taking the information you know and putting it into practice in moments that matter. The way my father-in-law used to define it is he called it a skill for living. There are books in the Bible that are called the wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes and Job and Psalms and Proverbs. It's, you learn lots of life principles that are true in different circumstances throughout all time. It's taking those, that, that knowledge and putting it into practice is what wisdom is. Today we're going to talk about waking up to wisdom from Ephesians chapter 5. If you've got a Bible, Ephesians chapter 5, I'll start reading in verse 1. We'll go as far as we can get today. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. Some people say that Ephesians 5.1 is the application of Ephesians 1.5. Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. So in other words, be like your father. Ephesians 1.5 says that we're adopted into God's family that we were separate from him, and he brought us into his family as orphans, as people that were dead in our trespasses and sins, as people that were without hope and without God, that he chose us and brought us into, our fam- into his family, gave us a new name, a new identity, and we're to live that out. Now, when we were in Ephesians chapter 1, I didn't spend a bunch of time talking about the picture of adoption that the New Testament paints. But the people that Paul's writing to lived in a Roman culture. In Rome, uh, they had adoption, but it oftentimes was done actually by adults. It would be done by royal people and people that had empires. They'd adopt another adult in order to protect their kingdom. And so, in other words, adoption wasn't an act of love. It was actually self-serving. It was because of what I get from it. Now, many of us have a different picture of adoption. Let me tell you where that came from. See, in the Roman world at this time, uh, many people, kids were not highly valued. Many people, they didn't want their kids, they would discard them, literally throw them in the garbage. And then some people would have children that were disabled or deformed, and they would, they would do what we oftentimes call, it's the it's, it's way we sterilize uh, terms, infanticide. They would kill their babies. And so there was a, a community that had a culture of abandonment and infanticide, and Christians were the ones that lived countercultural. 
And they came in and they adopted these children into their family, not because of what the kids could give to them, because of what they could give to the kids. That's biblical love. Real love is when you, you are willing to sacrifice what's best for you for the sake of what's best for somebody else. And so it was the Christians that did that. Now, today is Orphan Sunday, just so you know, like nationally uh, and internationally, it's Orphan Sunday, which is a time where churches across the world uh, make their congregation aware of the orphan needs in the world. And so right now, all across the world, there are 140 million orphans. Some of you are involved in that, some of you have adopted, some of you are in the process of adopting. Uh, just here in the United States, there are over 400,000 kids that are in foster care. We partner with a ministry called Safe Families that helps try to prevent uh, even families from having to be in a situation in the foster care. We've got other ministries uh, that we partner with for adoption. And if you've got questions about any of that, go to our Next Steps table after the service. If you're interested in adopting, go to the Next Steps table. If you are adopting and you just want your church to pray for you, you need money, you need connections, just go to the Next Steps table. We'd love to help you with that. But the picture in the New Testament is that each one of us were spiritually orphans. We've been adopted into God's family, and now in chapter 5, verse 1, we're being told how to live in light of that. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk. And remember, we've talked about walk is a word that's used for live. It's just a metaphor that's being used here. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as, proper, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For, here's the reason, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness. That's interesting. It doesn't say you were in darkness. It's an identity statement. You were darkness, but now you are light. Not in light, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Be who you are. Live your identity. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's what light does. For it's shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But... When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, it says, what says? This is not a verse in the Bible. I think maybe Paul's quoting a hymn here. He says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. We talked about what wisdom is, taking the things that we know and putting into practice in moments that matter, or skill for living. But what is foolishness? And foolishness is more than just the decisions you thought of when I asked you that question, what's the dumbest thing you've ever done? It's more than just swimming through a lake in Ohio, although that is foolish. Foolishness in the Bible is how we relate to God and how we relate to one another in practice. And when we sin, the Bible paints that as foolishness. So the Bible says things like this, Psalm 14.1, the fool is the person who says in their heart, there is no God. And so you might read that and think, well, that's an atheist. Here's the problem with that. Most people that attend church don't consider themselves atheists, but there's a lot of people that attend church that are practical atheists. A practical atheist is someone who lives like there is no God. No, I go to church and I said, I'm in the South. I believe these things and I prayed this prayer. No. If you live like you're your own authority, like you know better than God, then you are a practical atheist. The Bible says you're a fool. It also says that people who hear God's word and don't respond to it are fool. Jesus says that. And so Jesus says this, Luke chapter 24, verse 25. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, 
O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The Bible goes on and says in Psalm 107, verse 17, that some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquity suffered affliction. And so what you'll see, and if you want to study this on your own more, I challenge you to read the Proverbs. The Proverbs give a picture of here's what wisdom is, here's what foolishness is. There's 31 Proverbs, and so if you want, just every morning, take the day of the month, whatever it is, you know, tomorrow's the 8th, Proverbs chapter 8. What does it say about foolishness? What does it say about wisdom? And what you'll find is that foolishness is painted as sin. When you choose to live apart from God, when you choose to trust yourself or trust the world or trust people that are going to give you bad advice rather than God, you're a fool. When you trust God, that's what it is to walk in wisdom. I read an article this week by a guy named John Piper. Uh, He's a scholar and a pastor, and he went through a whole bunch of Bible verses and talked about how there's some nuances between sin and foolishness, but they're essentially the same thing. Listen to what he said. quote will be on the screen. In the Bible, the word foolishness exists mainly to bring to light how stupid sin is. The full-blown sinner is not just evil, he's an idiot. Told you he's a scholar. There it is. You might say that calling something sin means it displeases God, and calling it foolishness means it's going to displease you in the end, and so there's some nuances. Sin shoots God, folly shoots yourself. Sin opposes God, folly opposes yourself. Since opposing God is suicide, all sin is foolish. And so there is a way to live that is not living in suicide, not shooting your, not doing harm to yourself. The Bible calls it wisdom. And what our passage today says is, wake up to this. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is what does a walk of wisdom look like? And there's at least three characteristics of it. There's more, but we've only got so much time, and there's only so much truth that we can pull out of this passage in the time that we have. And so the first thing that I want to share with you today is this. A walk of wisdom exposes sin with holy passion. A walk of wisdom exposes sin with a holy passion. We go back to the passage. It said in verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Okay. So that'd be like saying to your kids, go act like your parents. Our parent is our heavenly father, and so how can we be like him? We can't be omnipotent. We can't be all-powerful. We can't be everywhere all the time. That's why some of y'all are late sometimes, right? Can't be in two places at the same time. You're doing something else, and so we're not all-knowing. Some of y'all forgot my birthday a couple weeks ago. What am I going to say? Just kidding. It's true, but just kidding. (laughs) And so what does that mean when it says to be like our father? Because there's certain things that we just can't be like when we talk about being like God. But then you've got to look at the passage. We don't just answer the question ourselves. What does it say? So, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And then, interestingly enough, it talks about what the Son was like. It says, be like Christ. Christ was God's Son. Remember what Christ said about Himself? He said, if you want to see what God's like, look at me. And He only did what the Father told Him to do. And so, what does it say next? It says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering sacrifice to God. And so we love like Christ loves is how we imitate the Father. But then there's more, but sexual immorality and all impurity. And what happens is for the rest of the passage, it goes through and talks about fleeing sin. And so what we're talking about here in being like God, it's another way to say where it says elsewhere in the Bible, be holy as God is holy. Here's the problem with holiness. Probably most of us here aren't running towards holiness. We're not hungry for holiness. See, here's the thing with wisdom. We're talking about this wisdom today. The world is not in the state that it's at because we're overflowing with an abundance of godly wisdom. 
Okay, churches don't split because the churches are filled with people overflowing with godly wisdom. It's a skill for living, remember? They're not living it out. They might know stuff. You see, the, the fact, people don't walk away from God and their church and healthy relationships because they're overflowing with godly wisdom. We don't drift toward godly wisdom. We drift toward sin. We drift towards what's natural. We drift away from God. That's what naturally happens. See, when I, I remember when I was a youth pastor about 20-some years ago, and I'd have kids in my house, and we'd talk, and we'd open up the Bible, and then they'd ask, they'd ask practical questions. They'd be dating relationships. I never once had a kid say to me, how, far, how can I get as far away from sin as I possibly can? No one ever asked me that question. Do you know what I did get asked? How far can I go? How, it's like there's a line, like the edge of the stage, like how close to the line can I get without somebody getting hurt, God getting mad? And you know, we can make fun of kids for that. We all do it. If you want to know more about holiness, I read a book uh, one time called A Hole in Our Holiness by a guy named Kevin DeYoung. And uh, he talks about actually this passage in one section, so I'll read you a little quote from it. Uh, he says this, is it possible that with all the positive signs of spiritual life in your church or in your heart, there's still a sad disregard for your own personal holiness? When was the last time we took a verse like, and this is one of the verses in our passage today, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. That's Ephesians 5, 4. And he said, and began to even apply this to our conversation, our movies, our YouTube clips, our television and commercial intake. What does it mean that there must not even be a hint of immorality among the saints? It must mean something. In our sex-saturated culture, I would be surprised if there were not at least a few hints of immorality in our texts, our tweets, our inside jokes. And what about our clothes, our music, our flirting, and the way we talk about people who aren't in the room? If the war on poverty is worth fighting, how much more is the war on your own sin? What are we fighting? See, what I think needs to happen for many of us, if we're going to be serious about holiness, we're going to have a hunger for holiness like the Beatitudes talk about, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, is we've got to be exposed to the holiness of who God is. Who is our Father? What is He like? Because we talk about, we talk a lot about here at this church, and we're about grace, and we're not trying to be legalistic and doing any stuff, and we, how imminent God is, how present He is, that He'll never leave you or forsake you, that He's closer than a brother, He wants a relationship with you. That's all true. But he's also other. That's what holiness actually means. Holiness is not just moral perfection. Holiness is an otherness, a transcendence of God. And what you see in the Bible is when people come into contact with the holiness of God, all of a the sudden they want a holiness themselves. There's a passage of Scripture in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet Isaiah sees the Lord. He says, I saw the Lord seated on his throne. He starts to describe what that's like and the robe, and what the throne was like, and there are these angelic creatures, and he describes what the angelic creatures are like, and he says, and they're singing to God, holy, holy, holy. And do you know what Isaiah does next? He doesn't say, hey God, I got a question. How far can I go? How close to sin before you, and it's over. That's not what the passage says. You know what the passage says? And, and it's really applicable in light of the passage we just read about the way we speak, revealing our hearts. He said, woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And do you know what God does next? He's gracious, because that's who he is. Slow to anger, abounding in love. 
what we read about in Ephesians chapter 1. You know the chapter that told us that positionally we're holy before God because of what Christ did for us? It says that he lavished his grace on us, not out of, but according to his riches. He lavished grace on Isaiah as he gave an angel a coal and he said, go put that on his lips and made his lips holy. Do you know how that passage ends? It's Isaiah saying, here I am, send me, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Do you know how this passage ends today? With us being commanded, challenged to submit ourselves to God completely so the Holy Spirit can take over our lives. And see, there's this, this walk of wisdom is a walk in holiness. A holiness in what? Well, think about what holiness does for God. It changes every character that he ha- characteristic that he has. God gets angry. We talked about that. But he has a holy anger. It's anger without sin. God speaks words. We know that words can be very wicked, very evil, very painful to people. But God's words are without sin. They're perfect words. And his love is a perfect love without sin. And what does it say here? That we, if we're going to love, we love. It could say to us, love with a holy love. See, the first word in chapter 5, verse 1, was therefore. That connects us back to earlier in the book. Remember a few weeks ago when I had a, a teeter-totter or a seesaw up here? And I balanced it. And I said, on one side is your calling. And it's a heavy calling. It's you've received grace. You've been made alive in Christ. The other side is your conduct how we live our lives, and they're supposed to be in balance with one another. That was Ephesians 4.1. Walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Therefore, connects us back to Ephesians 4.1. Remember what happens after 4.1? It basically says live like Christ because it says be humble. It's a characteristic of Christ. Be patient, be gentle, be forbearing, put up with one another. And then we saw that this isn't just something you do on your own. This is something that happens in community. And we saw that how we function in community with one another should demonstrate the unity of the Trinity. One Spirit, one Lord, one Father of all. So our unity is a demonstration in community of the Trinity. And then we looked at the the commands last week. All the commands were gospel commands. Put away falsehood, speak truth. How'd you hear the gospel? Be angry, don't sin. God's anger was poured out on Christ at the cross and we were revealing his character as we obey these commands. And the last one was forgive as you've been forgiven. I read a story this week on forgiveness. Um, It was otherworldly kind of forgiveness, supernatural forgiveness. It was a pastor in Romania. Uh, He had been beaten in a communist prison and another pastor was telling the story. They put him in a uh, jail cell that they had reserved for people that were about to die. This guy had been beaten within an inch of his life and so he's in this jail cell dying on a cot and they put in there the guy who beat him. They had beaten that guy to within an inch of his life. They had betrayed him, some of his comrades had and he was dying in the cot next to the pastor. In the middle of the night, the soldier who was in there who had beaten the pastor was having a nightmare, woke up and screamed out, Pastor, I can't die like this. And the pastor got up, was almost dead, but he shuffled over to this guy's cot, lays down next to him, starts stroking his hair, and says, I forgive you, and if I can forgive you, then how much more can Christ forgive you? This perfect love. The guy prayed to receive Christ. They both died that night. Now they're in heaven. But that guy, he saw holy love. Do you have anybody in your life who needs to be forgiven or experience holy love from you? Jesus says this in Matthew when he's talking about our love. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do that? Like anybody does that. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, he's calling you a holy love. Love your enemies. 
It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, this is how God loved us. God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a holy love. But holiness isn't just how we love, it's also how we live. And so what Paul does next in this passage is he says, here's some sins that are going to be really applicable to the Ephesians. Avoid these sins. And, and what we're going to see when we read this, he talks mostly, it's mostly sexual. And so today's message is not a sexual message. If so, I'd have given you a heads up of the content. I'm not going to say anything that if you're 12 and older, you haven't heard. Uh, or I'd have given you a heads up on that. But here's the summary of it. Sexual morality, bad. Flee. Get away from it. We don't need five steps on how to deal with it or three ways to overcome it. Like, if you see sexual morality, get out of there. Don't have anything to do with it. I remember when I was a, a new Christian. I wasn't planning on saying this is extra. Uh, I was a new Christian. I was over at a guy's house, and I'm 18 years old. I had just trusted Christ. And he said, hey, you're in a car with a girl. She starts putting the moves on you. What do you do? I said, and I, had knew, I knew one verse. It was Romans, or uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. That no temptation seized you, but what's common to man. God's faithful. He'll give you a way out from underneath it. He goes, you know what? Joseph didn't know 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I was like, I don't know Joseph. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, I'm a new Christian. I don't know. That was like, Jesus, dad? Like, what are you talking about? Joseph. It was talking about Joseph in the Old Testament. The story in the Old Testament was this guy, Joseph. Uh, his boss's wife starts hitting on him. And he says, I'm out of here. She grabs his coat, accuses him of rape, but he got out of there. He stayed pure. He fled. He said, you run. You get out. I was thinking this week about this passage and some of these verses I'm about to read to you. Do you remember COVID when it first started? Like, I'm not talking, forget politics. Forget all that stuff. I'm not saying anything political. I'm sure we're going to get dropped from YouTube. We love you. You can find us at sfchurch.com. Uh, but anyway, like, <clears throat> here's the deal. At the beginning of COVID, it didn't matter what your political persuasion was. It didn't matter any of that stuff. Everybody was going, what is this? It's dangerous. Are we all going to die? And it was like, buy all the Clorox wipes and hand sanitizer. I don't know why the toilet paper, but all the hand sanitizer, like all the stuff you can get. And people are wiping down everything. Like they're just trying to get away from COVID. Can you imagine if we treated sin like that? But we act like sin, it's not that bad. It's cool. It's fine. Listen to what the Bible says. Forget whatever else I've said today. And, and just listen to what it says about this. Talking to you as a, a child of God, but sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even, must not even be named among you because it's not proper for you. It is as proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Here's why. For you may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. So, that means you're not a Christian, just to be real clear. Let no one deceive you with empty words. So before I explain this away, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Listen, last week, I mentioned some things about pornography. Some of y'all weren't buying it, just to be real clear. I told you, I said, you know, I, we were talking about not hurting other people. And I said, some people are, are addicted to pornography. And you think, well, it's, you lie to yourself and say, well, it's not hurting anybody. It's just a picture. And I said, well, you're hurting the people there. Most of them have been trafficked. Many of them are hooked on drugs because of things they're being forced to do. And also, it impacts just secular studies tell you it impacts every relationship you have. Some of you are like, yeah, whatever. And then you proceeded to do whatever you decided to do this week and didn't, didn't believe me. I'm going to share some stats with you this week. Okay, like I said, not going to be anything graphic. And if you want more information, we got about 40 pages of stats we can give you. Just email our church. Um, here's some stats, different studies. 40 million Americans regularly visit porn sites, regularly. 
It's a high percentage. 35% of all internet downloads, so think about all the things the internet's used for, 35% are related to pornography. George Barna concluded that 90% of teens and 96% of young adults, that's people in their 20s, um, are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about porn with their friends. So when they're talking about it, they're either encouraging people to do it, or they're accepting of it, or they're at least neutral about it. They must not know how dangerous it is, because here's what some secular studies have come to the conclusion about. According to the Journal of Adolescent Health, exposure to pornography leads to a lack of attraction to family and child raising. It leads to cynicism about love and about the need for affection between two people, because it's a physical thing. It, it leads to belief that abstinence and sexual inactivity are unhealthy. It leads to a belief that promiscuity is normal. If you have kids, listen to this one. 27% of young people, so more than one in four, have received a sext, not a text, a sext. If you don't know what that is, email our office. 15% of them have sent one. 64% of Christian men, these are men in the church, 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women view porn at least once a month. This is clearly an issue. Now, I could tell you more stats about how dangerous it is and how deadly it is and all those things, but nothing's more potent than what the Bible said. Did you see what the Bible says? For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is, and so I'm not inflecting anything here, sexually immoral or impure, who is covetousness, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Ouch. Well, those are, those are tough words when we know it's statistically impossible that people that are hearing these words right now, that aren't some of you that are addicted to pornography. So what does this mean? Let me say this. Uh, first of all, we know that it is possible for someone who is a Christian to fall into sexual sin. We see it with David, um, with Bathsheba, we see it throughout the Bible. And so it doesn't mean just because you have sexual sin either as part of your story or it is your story right now, that it means that there's no hope or that means you're not a Christian. But what the passage is saying is, if you think this is fine, you're probably not a Christian. But if you're struggling and you're in a battle, I want to say to you as a pastor, um, my goal to you in preaching this message is not to heap shame on you. It's not to bring more condemnation. I'm sure you probably feel a lot of shame already, and there probably is a lot of guilt. We have resources for you to help you walk in freedom. I had a guy come up to me after first service. We're doing a, a thing to introduce new people to the church, and he said, that's my story. That's, that's how I came to Christ, because I was addicted to pornography. God brought me out of that. Tell the next service, there's freedom. There's freedom, church. You can have freedom, but you've got to acknowledge the problem and let us help you. And when I say help you, I don't just mean, hey, you can meet with a pastor. We can talk. We can do that. We care about you. But I mean, we've got counselors that we can give you that are specifically for addiction, specifically for sex addictions. They've had great experiences with people in our church and outside our church. And we can connect you with people in our church and outside our church. And there's groups within our church and there's groups with outside of our church that we can connect. Whatever, whatever you're ready for, we don't want you in that bondage. The guy who writes this passage and says these things, he talks about his own struggle with sin. In Romans chapter 7, he says, what a wretched man am I. That's a cry for help. And then he says, who, who, not what, who will rescue me? Romans 7 is his battle. Romans 8 is the victory. Romans chapter 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Look what it says in Romans chapter 8 verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free. But he's still struggling. Yeah, we're all struggling. If you claim that you don't struggle with lust and you're a man, I can say this as a man, you're lying. 
Okay, if you claim that you don't have, that you don't sin, you're a liar. But if you keep going in this sin and you act like it's no big deal, you're probably not a Christian, is what the Bible's saying. But he says here, he says that Jesus set him free for what the law was powerless to do. You trying to do your best on your own isn't going to work. It's never worked for anybody throughout human history. Don't be so arrogant to think you're going to do it. But look at what it says. It was weakened by the sinful nature. God did by sending his own son and the likeness of a sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man. The condemnation was poured out at the cross. Amen? And it's through Christ. Who will rescue me? It's Jesus. So what does Jesus say? Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. John chapter 8 verse 36. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Listen, if you're in bondage, you can be free. Amen? We've got to wake up to the way of foolishness and the way of wisdom. A walk of wisdom exposes sin with holy passion. And that's what we see in this passage. The second thing we see is this. A walk of wisdom exposes sin with holy passion. And a walk of wisdom displays the urgency of today's opportunity. A walk of sin displays the urgency of today's opportunity. Look at verse 14. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Okay, what does that look like? Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. King James says, redeem the time. Uh, the New International Version says, make the most of every opportunity. I like how the message says it. We'll put it on the screen. The message says this. So watch your step. Use your head. Make the most of every chance you get. These are desperate times. There's a movie on uh, Amazon that you can watch. Uh, you don't have to spend your time on it if you don't want to. I'll give you a summary of it here in just a moment. It's about a three-star movie. It's probably a C, probably where I grade it. So decide how you want to use time. She's got extra time, I guess. Make the most of your opportunities. Probably not this movie, but let me save you some time and tell you about it. Uh, it's called Mine, M-I-N-E. It's about two Marines that are out in the desert. While they're out in the desert, their mission goes sideways. They end up walking across the desert. As they're walking across the desert, they're talking about their lives. They're talking about relationships. One guy, you can tell, he's kind of uptight. He's pretty anal, uh, analytical, however you like to phrase that. The other guy's pretty laid back. He's pretty chill. And they're just talking. And this sign comes blowing up. And it's written in, I don't know, Farsi, Arabic. I don't know what it was. But there's a, you could tell that it was warning them of landmines. And he says to his partner, the one guy, the more uptight guy, he says, did you know that there's 33 million landmines that have been buried in the desert over the last 40 years? And the other guy starts making fun of him about being uptight. And he starts going, come on, just relax. You're so uptight. And guess what happens? Yep, you guessed it. He steps on a landmine. His legs are blown off in the next scene. And his buddy, who was the uptight guy, starts walking towards him, and he steps on something and goes, click. And the movie, for the next... It's not a 52-hour-long movie, but for the next 52 hours of this guy's life, he can't move his foot because he's waiting to be rescued from this landmine. Let me tell you the summary of what happens without any spoilers is that for the next 52 hours, he fights enemies without and within. Without sandstorms, animals at night in the middle of the desert, people that come shooting at him, all kinds of things happen on the outs. And then internally, he's dealing with his own anxiety, he's dealing with his own life, and much of it is about regrets from missed opportunities. Paul's saying in this passage, be careful how you walk. It's dangerous out there. Don't miss your opportunities. And here's what the opportunities are. The opportunities are for you to live on mission without wasting your time. 
Because here's the funny thing about time. The NIV says make the most of every opportunity. The King James says redeem the time. The funny thing about time is we all have the same amount. Everybody in here doesn't have the same amount of money. Everybody in here has got a different amount of money. But you all have 60 seconds for a minute and 60 minutes for an hour and 24 hours for today. So everybody that's going to live through today, we all got the same amount of time. Make the most of it. Make the most of every opportunity today. Because here's the thing about time that Paul gets. It slips away. We say a lot of funny things about time. I need to save some time, find some time, make some time. You can't do any of those things. It's just moving all the time. It reminds me of, I remember when I first moved to North Carolina, my brother-in-law invited me to, to a beach place that he had rented. Um, my brother-in-law, I don't see him here today, so he's skipping church. Call him out on that if you know him. Um, <clears throat> but he's crazy, okay? Uh, I got to this place in the Outer Banks he invited me to come to, and he comes up. There's a tropical storm, and he greets me at the door of my car with a bodyboard and hands it to me and says, come on, let's go. Like, you don't even unpack your stuff. We're going to the beach. I should have known this was a bad idea when there was no one else on the beach. Okay, so we get out to the beach. I got, I'm just following him. Like, he's from Florida. He knows how to surf. So I'm like, he must know what he's doing. We start jumping into these waves. We ride a couple waves. And then it seemed like about five minutes. We're a half mile down the beach. I didn't even realize we had gotten into a current. I just know where we started, way up there. It's not where I'm at today. Paul's saying, that's what time is like. It'll slip right through your hands. Those of you who have kids that were little at one time and aren't little anymore, you know what that's like. Like people come up to you at the store when you do have little kids and say, savor the time. And you're going, I'm just trying to survive. Get out of my face. But you're trying to be nice. Like, <laughs> and so I could talk to you about like, hey, don't miss those nights of tucking them in. That's not what the passage is talking about. The passage is talking about you've been, you're here on mission for a reason. See, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And he says to his disciples, the way the Father sent me, I'm sending you. So we're on a mission here, and the mission's not just to live a good moral life. The mission's not to be, if your mission were to become like Jesus, he'd just take you to be with him as soon as you trusted him. Because when you see him face to face, you're going to be like him, the Bible says. So why did he leave you here? He left you here on mission. Can you imagine, like just, just think about this. Can you imagine if you were in the army? And your commanding officer dropped you and a teammate off. And they said, hey, why don't you go rescue a soldier? I'll be back in 30 days. In 30 days, your commanding officer comes back. And he says, did you find the soldier? No. But we really like you. And so we were talking about your leadership for the last 30 days. And so we were studying a manual how we could become good leaders like you. We even studied it in Greek and Hebrew. And did you know, I know we're out here in this crazy spot you told us to rescue. There's some good beaches here. And we got to know each other really well. It's like, what are we, when, when Jesus comes back, what are, a lot of Christians are going to say stuff like that. Like, I was in Bible study. Did you see? And I was trying to become more like you. He's like, that's not why I left you here. I left you here to make disciples. I left you here. So when it is time to tuck your kid in at night, it's not just so you can have a, you know, a father-daughter moment, or a daddy-son moment, like whatever. You're not just getting a, 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 a memory together, an inside joke. Are you pointing that kid to Jesus? Make the most of every opportunity. Your job, your job wasn't just so that you could have a good weekend, so you could have a good vacation, so eventually one day you could retire, so you could come. For, like I put you in the specific spots at specific times for your coworkers. Did you pray for your coworkers and they were hurting? Did you, are you trying to point them to Christ? Like, don't miss the moments. Don't miss the opportunities. A walk of wisdom makes the most of today's opportunities. You will have opportunities even on a Sunday. 
A walk of wisdom not only exposes sin with holy passion, it makes the most of the moments, but a, a walk of wisdom discerns God's desires. Look at verses 17 through 21. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Another way to say that is, what does God desire for you? And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We'll get into that one more next week as we start talking about marriage, but I love here that Paul gives the contrast of two controlling things in our lives. So don't get drunk with wine. He's not saying that drinking's wrong. Sorry, those of you who think that's wrong. But he's saying being drunk's wrong. Don't be drunk with wine. That leads to debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Why does he compare those two things? If you know the Bible very well, you might know there's other places in the Scripture where that gets, those two things get compared, the Holy Spirit and being drunk. In Acts chapter 2, it's the beginning of the church. Uh, Jesus has just told his disciples he wants them to go out on mission, and it's urgent mission, but he says, wait. You can't do this on your own. Hold up. Wait. Just wait here until I send power. The power is the Holy Spirit. He says, so you just chill here until I send power on the day of Pentecost. That's Acts chapter 2. It says, it sounded like a rushing wind coming. And the Holy Spirit came on them like fire. And they began to speak. And they began to share the good news about Jesus in languages they hadn't learned in different tongues. And so it labels all the different places that people were from. And they were hearing the gospel in their own language. And the people start seeing this. And the non-believers started to mock the people that were preaching and going, these people are drunk. <laughs> and Peter, who's one of their leaders, stands up and goes, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning, man. We're not drunk. Let us tell you about Jesus. That's literally why I read the Bible. Acts chapter 2. But why the comparison between drunkenness and Holy Spirit? Because they're two controlling substances. What's being said here, when you're being commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit, is not receive the Holy Spirit, be baptized by the Holy Spirit, be, you know, whatever, what, have the Holy Spirit. The Bible says if you're a follower of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. It's a little teaching on Holy Spirit, not just what your pastor believes, but here's some verses. Ephesians chapter 1 from this book, verses 13 and 14. In him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So when you believed in Christ and you became a Christian, you received the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. There's more to come until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So well, I've heard people talk about getting the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized, no exceptions, into one body. Jew, Greek, slave, free, all were made to drink of one spirit. So then all Christians have the Holy Spirit in case it's not clear. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells into you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So, if you're a follower of Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit is not about you having the Holy Spirit. It's does the Holy Spirit have you? Being filled with the Spirit is you surrendering your life to the Holy Spirit's leading. The controlling substance is a controlling person. And you can grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30. That's hurt him. It's a real relationship. But when you're submitted to him, then guess what? There's signs of that in your life. And we read them. We sing. We gather corporately and sing. It's an evidence. Now listen, I don't sing except for when I'm in my car alone and here. And I was singing in the first service. One of the guys that was a worship leader, Jason's up here, came up and he goes, oh, you were singing first service because I had it in my ear monitor. Uh, they forgot to turn your mic off and that's all I could do. I was like, I am so sorry because it's bad. 
I'm not a good singer. I could go on one of those shows and pretend like I think I'm a good singer and that'd be the, I'm, I'd be why you'd watch. It's embarrassing. But why do I do it then? It's an evidence of the filling of the Spirit because I'm singing to the Lord, yes, but did you see the text says, to one another? We're singing, when we're singing to Jesus together in a corporate gathering, we're actually singing to one another as well. That's part of what's supposed to happen in the gathering in the church. It's part of the reason why it's, it's worth the parking and the kids and like all that stuff. To gather together is to hear one another sing. People that are different, different places of life, different thoughts, different stages, different all that stuff. But believing in one spirit, one Lord, one Father together, part of the filling of the spirit. Thankful. It's just thankful in everything. It doesn't mean you're thankful for everything, by the way. Some bad stuff happens in this world. It doesn't mean you're, oh, thank you that this terrible thing happened. But you can be thankful for him in everything. Thank you, God, that you were with me in horrible event. Thank you that you're sovereignly working, and you can actually use that for good, even though it wasn't good. Thankful. It's evidence of the Holy Spirit. Submissive to one another, all of us, regardless of position, regardless of gender, regardless of all that, submissive to one another as eyes to see and serve one another. So what we've been talking about is we've been talking about giftedness and a mature body, building it up. It happens when we submit to one another. And I believe verse 21 ties us back to verse 1 when it says, imitate how in love. What did Jesus do? Loved us, gave himself for us. It was a sacrifice that was pleasing to God that we're all to live that way, and that's the way of wisdom. And so then how do you discern God's desires? Let me tell you a simple answer. You do whatever you want. You do whatever you desire to do. When you're filled with the Spirit… Because the Spirit's guiding and controlling your life. It's going to give you your desire. You're not going to desire. You're not going to go, how close to sin can I get? You know, I'm trying to get close to you, God. I want you. And so whatever desires you have in your heart, do those things. The Psalms say it like this. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Wake up. There's a way of wisdom. This place is dangerous, and you have a mission. Father, thank you. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you that we can gather today. Father, I pray for those here today who might be in bondage, bondage to sexual sin, bondage to other sins we haven't even talked about. People here that are gossips, people here that just overeat all the time, and people that overwork all the time, and we pat them on the back and tell them congratulations. And Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them and show them there's a better way. Show them the bondage doesn't have to be the way. Show that there's a freedom way. There's a way that's light, that exposes sin, that brings truth that lives on mission, and that's guided and controlled by you. Father, I want to be guided and controlled by you. Will you remove the things in my life that are not like you? And I know sometimes that's speech, and sometimes it's anger and aggression. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that are here. I pray for people that don't know you. I pray you draw them to you. God, I pray that you would not let people think that they're Christians that aren't, that they would turn to you. I pray for I am, I am 100% confident. I've got brothers in this room that are in bondage to pornography. I pray that you'd bring them freedom today. Give them the, the Holy Spirit courage to make themselves known and to ask for help. And Father, I pray. I pray for marriages that are struggling and everybody thinks everything's okay because they're living together still in the same house. God, we know you want more than that. We'll talk more about that next week. And God, I just pray that you would work in our hearts, in our lives, in these moments. Even as we sing this song in just a second that we wouldn't just move to the next thing, but that you would speak to our hearts as we sing these words.